Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Aaron. I am one of the elders here at Trailhead, and uh, I'm privileged to be able to open up the Word with you this morning. And uh, this first Sunday of 2020, hope your year's off to a good start. It's only been five days. I hope it hasn't gone off the rails already. Um, but if it has, I'm, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said that. Um, <laughs> hey, before we dive into the Scripture together, um, I want to let you know, get on your radar, get on your calendar. January 26th, uh, it's three Sundays from now, January 26th, we're going to have Trailhead United. It's our anniversary service. We're going to be meeting at Edwardsville High School at 10 a.m. It's one service, um, all together 10 a.m. at Edwardsville High School, and we're going to celebrate uh, Trailhead. And the, which anniversary is this? 11. We're turning 11. That's a big number. It's real hard to remember. I'm sorry. 11. Um, anyway, please be here, be there. Don't be here, because if you're here, you'd be alone. You'd be locked out, and you'd just be, you'd just be you. But if you want to be everybody, then be at, at Edwardsville High School on January 26th at 10 a.m. Uh, for Trailhead United. We, we started this a couple years back, and we've called it Trailhead United, specifically because we normally have two services, and in this one Sunday, then we're all together. We're all united together, and that was the meaning behind it. However, um, I feel like this year it takes on a little bit the name, Trailhead United, takes on a little bit of added meaning. Because we've been talking lately um, for the past several months and continuing on into this year a lot about unity, about this passage that we are looking at here in Ephesians about having a bond of peace and about being united together. And, uh, and that's what we're going to be talking about for the next couple of weeks, what that means and what that looks like. Um, because here's the thing. You know this. I know this. This is nothing earth-shaking. You're not going to be writing this in your notes or anything like that. Getting along with other people is really hard. It just is. And, and here's the other thing. You know, I know, we all know this. It's everybody else's fault right? I mean, if it were just you by yourself, and if everybody just agreed with you, it would be so much better. Like, the world would be so much better if everybody just thought the way you thought and acted the way you acted. Maybe not acted the way you acted, but thought the way you thought, right? Then everybody would get along. But instead, we've got this environment, this culture, this society more than ever, it feels like, and I know it's not true that we're more divided than ever, okay? I'm not a history buff, but I've heard of the Civil War. So I know there have been times in American history where people really didn't get along with each other, but it feels so tense and so polarized. And even just, I'm preparing this week a sermon on, on unity and I'm trying to think through possible examples or illustrations. And every single thing I think of, I'm like, I, uh, I better not go there. Because if I say that, then this group will, and if, but if I can't go there, because if I go there, then they're going to, and it's like, you know, even down to the level of word, there's just certain words you can't even say. And it's just like, everything's just tense. And everybody's just watching. And everybody, it feels, it feels, it might not be true, but it feels like everybody's just listening for you to say just this one word or phrase that's going to tell them if you're on their team or you're not on their team. And if you're, if you're on my team, good, and I love you, and we're all good. And if you're not on my team, then I just, I hate you. And I want you gone. And I want you to stop talking and be out of my life. And it just, the stakes on everything just feel so high. And yet, we come here to Ephesians 4. And the Apostle Paul speaking to a church in Ephesus, but he's speaking to us as well because he's speaking to all believers. And he says that I urge you, in verse number one, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And what does that mean? It means, according to verse three, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Paul is saying here that as believers, we need not just to be united, although that's part of it. We need to be eager 
to be united. We should have a desire as believers in Christ to be united. It should be burning within us to want to go against the division of our culture and to find unity, to be bound together, to have peace. Now that sounds great, but how do you do that? How do we, in a culture, in a world, even in our own hearts that are so often so divided, how do we as a church family come together and find peace? How do we sit across the table or across the living room from somebody who I know, who you know, disagrees on matters that you find so absolutely important? How do you look that person in the eyes with love? How do you do that? Well, this, this much is pretty obvious. We don't do it in our own strength. That's for sure. On our own, we're, we're garbage at this. See, we go, we, we, we think unity and we think peace and what we do on our own, in our own power, in our own strength, is go to two very false uh, imitations of unity. Either, either we surround ourselves only with people who agree with us on every issue and on every preference. We tighten up our circle and we make sure everybody who's in our circle nods along with everything we say. And anybody who doesn't, we either, we, we, we get rid of them. We either cancel them or we try to convert them. You're either out of my life, you're not a part of this circle, or I'm going to do everything I can to drag you into my line of thinking. I'm going to persuade, persuade, persuade you until you're nodding along with me. And if it gets to the point where you just absolutely won't agree, then you're gone. You're done. And then we look around at the little circle of four people that we have left, and we go, I have unity. We all agree. But that's not unity. That's not at all what Paul's talking about in Ephesians 4. The other path we take that doesn't work because it's not real unity is to try to pretend that we don't have any preferences, any opinions, any convictions. That we're just open to whatever. You think this, that sounds good. You think this, that sounds good too. And when I'm talking to you, I'll agree with you. And when I'm talking to you, I'll agree with you, even though those two things make no sense logically together. Because I don't want to offend anybody, so I'll just pretend I don't have any opinions. But that's not unity either. That's just fake. There are important matters. And we all have ideas and opinions. What Paul's talking about about maintaining the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace is not a false unity where everybody either agrees with everybody else or pretends to agree with everybody else just so that there's no outward vocal argument. That's not what he's talking about. Paul's talking about the kind of unity and the kind of unity that we desperately need is a supernatural unity. A unity that supersedes our preferences and opinions, that bridges our differences on secondary matters, that allows people who voted for different candidates to come together and say, I love you and I respect you. And if, and listen, this is so powerful, if we could do that, as a church, we would be so counter to everything else going on in our world today. Everything in our world today says that if you disagree with me, you're evil, you're bad, I need you out of my life. And if we, 
as a people of God, could come together and be united in spite of, in the midst of, our differences. Imagine what that could look like. And imagine what the rest of the world would think. So here we go with the same question. How do you do that? And here's what we're going to see. We're going to spend the next three weeks looking at Ephesians 4, uh, 1 through 16. This morning we're only going to look at the first seven verses and then we'll get into the rest of it um, over the next couple weeks. Um, I like that because it gets a lot deeper and more confusing as it goes on and so I get to do this part and Steve gets to do the confusing part. So that's the way it should work. Um, But say that because he's not here. Um, Anyway, what was I saying? Oh, so we're going to spend the next three weeks in this passage. And here's the question we're going to ask. What does Paul say to us? Not just that we should do, but how do we do it? And here's what we're going to see. This is what we're going to see this morning, and this is truly what we're going to see throughout this passage. As believers... We have something that ties us together that's much stronger than anything that could drive us apart. We are, as believers, united with Jesus Christ. And it is our union with Christ that drives our unity with others. It is our connection to Jesus that makes it possible for us to have unity with each other even with people that we strongly disagree with. Because of our union with Christ, because of the gospel, it is not only possible, it's essential that we be united together. Our unity is centered and empowered, centered on and empowered by the gospel, and both of those are important, and we're going to look at both of those today. So I want to look at this passage, and I want to start with the why, and then I want to talk about the how. Um, So we're going to actually be looking at the verses a little bit backwards, but that's okay. Um, This is just how I have to understand why before I can get into the how. And so why is it essential, based upon the gospel, for us to be united together. Look at verses number four through seven. There is, this is Paul, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Um, One of the things when you're studying the Bible, one of the things you want to look for is um, repetition, recurring words and phrases. So this one's pretty easy. There's a word that's kind of frequent in those three verses. Did you catch it? The word one. There's one body, one spirit, one hope. He's not being subtle here at all. What Paul is saying is that there is an inherent sameness to what it means to be a believer in Jesus. If you know God, if you are a Christian, there is a sameness to what that means, what that looks like, and how that happened for you and for me and for everyone else who is a believer. Our stories are different, yes, but what it means to be a believer in Jesus is the same. There is one Lord, There is one faith. Jesus died one time on the cross for all of our sins. All of us are desperately in need of salvation. We've been, if you've been with us, if you were with us in the fall, we went through Romans chapters 1 through 3, and what we saw over and over and over through those first three chapters is that all of us desperately need to be rescued. 
All of us deserve God's judgment. All of us. And the way that we get rescued, the way that we avoid judgment is the same for every single one of us. It's Jesus. And there's only one Jesus. There's not a Jesus for Republicans and a Jesus for Democrats. There's not a Jesus for white people and a Jesus for black people. There's not a Jesus for the people who think like I think and a different Jesus for the people who disagree with me. There's one Jesus. And what he did to rescue me and to forgive me for my sins is exactly the same thing he did to rescue you and forgive you from your sins. And it's the exact same thing he did to rescue the person sitting next to you and to save them from their sins. And every other human being on the planet needs the exact same thing. It's Jesus. There's one God. He died one time for all of us. We all are desperately in need of his grace, verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us. But look what it says, according to the measure of Christ's gift, not according to how bad each one of us was individually. Do you see the distinction? I didn't need more grace than you needed. You didn't need more grace than I needed. We all needed the exact same thing. God's saving grace. I can get in my head that God's grace is just what fills in the gap between my goodness and God. That I try pretty hard and whatever's left over, God's grace will fill in the rest of the way. And if that's true, then maybe on my own I get closer to God. And maybe you aren't quite as good, so I need a little less grace to fill in the gap. Here's the truth. The gap for all of us is the same. It's massive. It's huge. There's nothing, absolutely nothing I can do to bridge that gap. We all need the same amount of forgiveness. We all need Christ crucified and his blood poured over us. We all need the same thing. And because of that, there is a unity in all of us who are believers in Jesus. And when we trust in his sacrifice, we are, the New Testament teaches us over and over and over again, united to him. We have union with Christ. The most common phrase that the New Testament uses to describe believers in Jesus is not Christian. In fact, the word Christian only appears three times in the New Testament, and every time it appears, it's actually used by someone else referring to believers sort of in an almost derogatory, negative sort of way. The phrase the Bible uses over and over and over to refer to believers is that we are in Christ. In Christ. We are united to him. Now think about this logically. If I am in Christ, and you are in Christ, then that means that we are united together. Whether it feels like it or not, and we'll talk about that, if we both have unity with Christ, then we automatically, in one sense, do have unity with each other. How can we not? If I'm united to Jesus, if Jesus is in me and I'm in him, and you're in him and he's in you, if all that is true, then we must be united together. And yet, and yet, we don't experience that all the time. So there has to be more 
than just saying, well, we're all Christians, so can't we all just get along? How do we have unity when we have real true points of disagreement? Foundationally, it's true. Because we are united to Christ, we should be united to each other. But it doesn't always feel like we're united, does it? So this is where we're always so tempted to say, well, the gospel is good, the sacrifice of Jesus is good, but it's not quite good enough. Now we need to, and here's what I want you to see, and here's what Paul is going to show us here. The gospel isn't just the reason why we're united, it's the power for us to experience unity. Even when we disagree, So that's what I want to spend the majority of our time this morning looking at, is how the gospel doesn't just inspire our unity, but empowers our unity. How living in and believing and resting in our union with Christ drives us closer to each other, bridges those gaps, and allows us to experience true unity. It has to start with this. It has to start with that understanding that we are in Christ. And not just like, okay, that's a thing about me, but that that is the thing about me. We have to start with a conviction that the most important aspect of our identity, the truest truth about us, as believers, is that we are in Christ. That that is over everything else. That there are other ways I can describe myself. There are other things about me that are true. There are other opinions I hold that are absolutely convictions that I have. But all of them, all of them fall under the truth that I am in Christ. That when I look in the mirror, or when somebody asks me, who are you? That the first thing, the first thing that is true about me is that I'm in Christ. And everything else subordinates to that. And everything else bows down to that. And if anything isn't in alignment with that, then it doesn't fit who I am. Because who I truly am, if I'm a believer, if you're a believer, who you truly are, is you are in Christ. If you start there, if you start there, then that allows us to have unity. If you don't, now hang on just a second, if you don't, if this isn't true, if our acceptance and our security and our peace and every good thing about us isn't founded in Jesus' sacrifice for us, then actually unity probably isn't going to be a good goal for you to strive for. Let me explain. If if who you are is not founded in Christ, if it's founded in something about you, then anybody who doesn't like that thing about you really is going to harm your conception of yourself. If If the most important thing about you is not Jesus, then other people's opinion of you really does matter. If you're not set and secure in Christ, then you better figure out how to make sure that you're only surrounded by people that you agree with. Because if you're not secure in Jesus, if what is most true about you is some opinion or some preference or some conviction that you have, then when somebody pushes against that, man, what does that mean about you? I mean, what if you are wrong, and that's the most important thing about you? That could be absolutely devastating. We have to start. We have to start with the truth that our acceptance, our forgiveness, Our peace, our joy, our security, our everything 
is based upon our connection to Jesus. If that's true, then it opens us up to seek unity. How does it do that? Four ways Paul shows us here that the gospel empowers our unity. First of all, because it reminds us of our desperate, desperate need for grace. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. That's in the gospel. With all humility and gentleness. How in the world can I have humility if I'm right and everyone else is wrong? How in the world can I be humble when I'm so much better than everyone else? That's not possible. But when I When I remember the gospel, what I'm reminded is I am desperately broken. I am not on my own good. All of us are desperately broken. And the reason that we have any kind of peace or security or anything with Jesus is not because of anything we've done. And so when I look at you and you look at me and we don't agree about something, I have to be able to believe that it is possible, it is possible that in my brokenness, I could be wrong. It is possible. Please just just go with me a little bit. It is possible That that thing that you feel so much absolute and total conviction about, you could be wrong. Possibly. You're probably not. But it's possible. If I convince myself that I am where I am because of my own effort and my own strength and my own intelligence, then it's really hard to interact with anybody else with any sense of humility with any kind of gentleness. Because they just need to figure out what I figured out. They just need to be as good as me, as smart as me, get in line. But when I recognize, when I recognize my low, low position, the truth of how far short I fall, How can I see myself as any better than anybody else? And even, let's just pretend for a moment. Even if you're absolutely and totally right about everything, which would make you, well, let's not even go there. Let's, what if? Okay? Every political position, every preference, every idea about, you know, what you should watch or listen to or how you should spend your time or your money or any, all of that, let's let's assume, let's pretend for just a moment that you're absolutely right. Think about this. Have you always been there? Every conviction, every belief, every opinion you have, were you born with it? Or did you at some point change your mind? Is it possible, is it possible that even if you're right, that the best approach to take to other believers who disagree with you is not to harangue them and look down upon them and constantly bring it up in every conversation to try to persuade them? Is it possible that maybe you should interact with them, as Paul says, not just with humility and gentleness, but also with patience? Maybe you're right. And maybe they do need to change. Does change happen overnight? Look, there are situations. Hey, come on. Uh, um, Let me drop sarcasm for a minute. Um, There are situations that are difficult. There are people that you know, that you interact with, that you care about, who are harming themselves or others by their sin. 
they will not change based on one single conversation. You never changed based on one single conversation. Change takes time. And setting aside the fact that even all of us imperfect humans don't always know exactly what's right, We cannot expect people to be where we are exactly when we want them to be there. This was a a friend of mine said this a couple years back and it really had a huge impact on me because we were talking with somebody else who was really, really fired up about somebody who disagreed about an issue that was, it was a scriptural issue and they were just wrong and he just was so upset and he even said, I just get so mad and people who are wrong on this issue. And we all three, and now this is, we all three of us agreed on the, the issue that was being discussed. Um, but my friend said to him, and my friend was older, and he said, I feel that way sometimes, but what I always have to remind myself is how wrong I used to be. And when I remember how wrong I used to be, it really makes it hard to get angry at anybody else for being wrong about anything. We remember how desperately we need grace. When we remember how and why we even received God's grace, look at what he says. Um, Verse number, uh, still verse number two, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, Bearing with one another in love. Do you know why you're, if you're a believer, do you know why you're a believer? It's because God loves you. It's not because you were smarter than anybody else. It's not because you were better than anybody else. It's because God loves you. It wasn't because he thought you would be able to advance his agenda better than anybody else. It wasn't because he knew that you were going to be able to straighten things out and have more willpower than everybody. It's because he loved you. And when my life's a wreck, when your life's a wreck, and you recognize that your standing with Christ is only because of his love, that's a powerful, powerful reminder. So the question of that is, if God loves you that much, What does that say about anybody else who's a believer? It means he loves them that much. Sometimes our inability to love other believers is really a reflection of our inability to believe that God actually loves us. We didn't earn God's love, and yet he loves us. The gospel reminds us that we desperately need God's grace, and yet he gave it to us in his love, to us and to every other believer. The gospel also reminds us of God's sovereignty in all things. Look at verse uh, number number four. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Here is verse six. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. God is over everything. He's in control. Every time you think the world is about to spin totally out of control, every time it feels like your world is spinning totally out of control, God is still in control. It doesn't always feel like it, but it's true. Most of our anger, our outward anger, is actually inner fear. 
if we dig down into what really divides us most of the time, we are afraid. We are afraid of the, not, looking. most of our disagreements aren't actually about the beliefs other people have. It's about what we perceive to be the consequences of those beliefs. Like, if you just think something, that doesn't really impact me. But if you thinking that influences other people to think that, and by them thinking that they change the world I live in, now I'm in trouble. And I get afraid. Hey, fear is powerful. I know I'm referencing politics a lot. I'm sorry, it's just, it's divisive. And, and we have an election coming this year, and you are going to hear a ton of fear. Because that's how people get elected. I convince you that if the other person wins, everything is done. They will destroy everything you hold dear. Imagine a future with them in office. It's, it's unimaginable. Be afraid. Vote for me. Be afraid. Buy my product. Be afraid. Do whatever it is I'm asking you to do. It's a powerful lever. And I tend to believe, because of my fear, what, what do we do when we're afraid? We'll either retreat or we try to change things. I've got to fix this. I'm afraid. And if I vote for this person, it'll help fix what I'm afraid of. If I can change people's minds, it'll fix what I'm afraid of. If I can get my, my wife or my kids to act the way I want them to act, then it'll take away what I'm afraid of happening. And I put on myself the weight of fixing the world. And all that does is increase the importance of every single issue. Every single idea. Every single disagreement. Because it's on me to fix it. And if you disagree, you are in the way of me fixing the world. And so I've got to fix you. Again, either by getting rid of you or by getting you on my, on my side. What if there's a God who's in control of everything? And what if it's not on me to fix the world? What if it's not your responsibility to fix what's broken? Now, I'm not saying, and we'll come back to this in a minute, I'm not saying that we don't, as believers, in following and obeying God, we don't in that work toward the restoration of the world the way God intends it to be. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is it's not our responsibility. We don't bear the weight of fixing everything. We can't. Only God can do that. Let's say this again. Think about the gospel in your own heart. Are you a believer? Are you a Christian? Because someone else saved you? Because someone was able to manipulate you? Because someone was able to say just the right words and didn't slip up and say the wrong words? Is that why you're a believer? Or do you know Jesus because God in his grace reached into your heart and opened your eyes to hear and understand the gospel? Does that mean that we don't talk to others that we love and share the gospel with them? Of course we do. But it also means that it's not on us to save the world. The world has one Savior. Thank God it's not me. <clears throat> the gospel, the truth that God is in control in my own heart and in the whole world reminds me He's over all and through all and in all. I don't have to be afraid of people who aren't on the same page as me on every issue. The gospel reminds us of our need for grace. It reminds us of God's sovereignty. It also reminds us 
of the final and only solution to the brokenness of this world. Verse uh, number four, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Again, this is not saying that following God isn't going to, in some ways, influence the world around us. But the goal of every Christian's life is not to change the world. Because the only one who ever can or ever will change the world, and is going to change the world, is Jesus. And the only hope for the world is not any political platform. It's not any economic program. It's not any organizational moral crusade. The only hope for the world is Jesus. The only hope we have in our own hearts is Jesus. I mean, have you gone through, have you experienced the, the, the pain and the heartache of pinning your hopes on yourself? Of pinning your hopes on anything other than Jesus? Have you ever rested your hope in a relationship? How does that work out? Have you ever rested your hope in your job? Even when you succeed, were you satisfied? I won't even ask if you've ever rested your hope in a politician. I guess I just did. That was so disingenuous of me. I'm sorry. (laughs) Absolutely, as believers, we work toward restoration. We seek to follow God. We seek to love others. We seek to influence the world through our love, through God's grace. Absolutely. But we do not rest our hope in anything other than the Savior who will restore all things. And we understand, and we have to understand, that in this life, we will not see complete and total restoration of our world. It just won't happen. We still live in a broken world. One day we are promised that Christ will restore all things to himself and it will be beautiful it will be glorious and we who are believers in christ will get to share in that beautiful glorious future that's what we're hoping in and we'll be sharing in that beautiful and glorious future with other believers who didn't vote for the same people we voted for can you believe that We will be sharing in that beautiful, glorious future with other believers who look very different from us, who act very different from us, but they were united to the same Savior that we are united to. The gospel reminds us of our desperate need for grace, of God's sovereignty over everything, of our final and only hope fixing the brokenness of this world. And it also reminds us, and we said this to start, but I have to say it again, it reminds us of our true identity. Who we truly are is sinners saved by the grace of God. That's us. Paul says, I therefore... He's talking about himself. Here's his identity. A prisoner. Oh, is that your identity, Paul? You're in prison. He wrote this letter in prison. That's your identity. You're a prisoner. No, I'm a prisoner for the Lord. And he's playing with words here. Because Paul uses this phrase over and over. A servant, a slave, a prisoner for God. Yes, he was in prison when he wrote this, but he's saying that's not the prisoner I am. I am so bound I am so enslaved by Jesus Christ. That's who I am. I'm a prisoner for the Lord. 
the most important thing, if you are a believer in Christ, the most important thing about you is that you are in Christ. And you don't have to feel threatened by anybody who disagrees with you because their disagreement doesn't change who you are. You don't have to take disagreements as personal attacks because who you are is not just your opinions or your convictions. Who you are is assured and set in Christ Jesus. And even when you are personally attacked, you don't have to return those personal attacks with anger and with vengeance because who you are is set and secure. And what other people think about you actually doesn't matter because the only one whose opinion matters is not based on your behavior, on your opinions, It's based on his sacrifice. Your identity, our identity, is in Christ Jesus. And so with all that, Paul is able to say that to walk in a manner worthy of all of that, because the gospel is true, to walk in that, means to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. But he's not saying, so get to work. He's saying it's possible. It's possible. What to the rest of the world is impossible. What to those who are not in Christ is not possible. For us, it is possible. And could you imagine, just imagine with me, what The power of that would be to be a church that we're not all on the same page politically. That maybe we don't all agree on what working towards restoration is going to look like in the most practical sense. But we're all united. And we love each other. And we trust each other because of the gospel. I want to move straight into communion this morning because I believe communion is one of the most beautiful and apt pictures of exactly what we are talking about this morning. Because here's what happens when when believers share communion together. We come down and there's bread, and the bread is representative. It's symbolic of Jesus' body, the sacrifice that he made. And we dip it into this cup that's symbolic of his blood. And, and there's this aspect of communion that is, I when, I, when I take the bread and I dip it in the cup, I'm saying, that's for me, personally. I'm personally putting that bread, that, that, that wine, into my body in a way that says, I believe that Jesus did this for me. And that's totally true, and it's totally valid, but there's more. There's more to it, because we aren't individually each taking our own bread. We're sharing together. It's one loaf. Now, I will say, we obviously have five loaves. That's for logistical reasons. I, was gonna, I even thought about it. I was like, maybe today we'll do one. I, it would just take forever. And logistics. So, so just bear with me, okay? Because the image is still the same. That I'm not the only one who gets this bread. Because I'm not the only one who needs this bread. And the bread I need is not different than the bread you need. The cup I dip it in is not different than the cup you dip it in. Because the blood that I need to cover over me is the same blood you need to cover over you. When you take communion this morning, here's what I ask you to consider. Yes, you are saying, this is Christ's sacrifice for me. I believe in this. I am trusting in this. This is my only hope. But will you consider that you are taking it from the same loaf as everyone else here? That we are united by Christ's sacrifice for us. 
As we move into this time of response, I would also remind you, um, if you, there are response cards in your bulletin. If you have a question, if you'd like to talk about anything, if you, if you need prayer for anything, if you write that on those response cards, you can put those cards in the boxes here on the tables or at Connection Point out in the lobby on your way out. <clears throat> if you're not a believer, if you haven't trusted in that sacrifice, this would be the most beautiful day for you to do that. To believe that the God of all the universe sacrificed himself on your behalf. And to share, maybe for the first time ever, communion. Saying, I believe this sacrifice is to me. I want to be joined to Christ. If that's not where you are, Hey, none of us got there overnight. We understand. You are totally safe and secure to just stay in your seat. Nobody's going to judge you. Nobody's going to look down on you. We all know we're all sinners who desperately need God's grace. But if you are a believer, this is your time to say, I believe his sacrifice was for me. I believe his sacrifice was for us. If you would join with me, in reading the underlined words on the screen. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Thank you, Lord, for your broken body. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Thank you, Lord, for your spilled blood. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Come soon, Lord Jesus. Come soon. Believers, when you're ready, please come.